One of the best parts about interviewing community leaders and partners for this podcast is hearing their origin story, how they got to where they are today, and what influences they experienced as a child that led them to their current values and beliefs. For Sheila Cochran, Milwaukee Area Labor Council AFL-CIO retiree and 2017 United Way campaign co-chair, both her understanding of the concept of Alice and her connection to organized labor began at a very early age. We talk about that and much more during this, the longest episode in living local history. United Way is proud and grateful for our 76 years of partnership with organized labor. Enjoy this conversation with one of our most distinguished local labor leaders. Living Local, telling the stories that connect us. A United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County podcast. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Um, I wanted to uh, get you here because, you know, this is, there's a lot of things going on in your life. And um, since you're a co-chair this year, I always try to sit down with each of the co-chairs. And I thought now is a good time. The labor kickoff was last night. Yes, how did, was. how was that? I think it went well. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was nicely attended. We had, uh, a nice, I think they did a really nice setup and a nice event out at the Plumbers Hall. It's the first time Mary Lou had been there, so she oh. really liked it. And then we had, um, I think, a good little message for them. So I think it went well. What message did you share? Well, you know, for for the labor crowd, they really relate to anything that has a, an economic effect on working people. And so the Alice Lit is perfect. And... Uh, even before we got started, the president of the Labor Council, Pam Fent, made reference to it. And she really articulated who, you know, who the population was and how it was and encouraged people to take the Alice literature that was provided. And then I had made reference to it because I actually have uh, two folks that live in my house that fall in that category. And really? they're friends of mine. And I, I, I watch their situation every day, and I said, my God, you know, and they're extraordinarily grateful for being able to, you know, live with me, and I'm glad they're there because, you know, I, I live alone now, but or I did, but they are in that, I mean, they are so that category. I mean, yeah. I've seen things from not having, I mean, everything that people kind of take for granted, like um, waking up to a flat tire and not having a spare, got a donut but not knowing how to put it on. And so I have AAA. So they came and changed, and they're like, wow. Um, and so it's simple stuff. I mean, I've never had to change a flat tire. And, I mean, I know how if I had to, but for this young lady, this was her, it is her only source of uh, getting back around. She goes to school, and she works, and she has to take her little girl to, cha- to child care. So her day starts at about 6.30 in the morning. And she has her daughter at daycare by 7.15, and then she's at work, and then she's at school. And I was just on the phone with her, and she has, like, a test tonight at 5. So she knows that he can pick her daughter up, they will be at home, I'll be there, she can take her test tonight, and she doesn't have that worry. And it's just stuff that I think people take advantage of. And so for me... Because my life kind of started out like that. Because the other thing I shared last night was back in the 50s, we all lived in one little house on 6th and Minor Key. Who's who's we all? 
Well, it was um, my uncle and his family, my, uh, me and my mother and my brother, uh, my aunt, uh, and we had an occasional friend that lived in and out. My father had contracted tuberculosis when I was like two, three years old. And so he spent 18 months out at, we called it Murdale at the time, which is now the county grounds. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't there. And that little house was only literally a two-bedroom house. Wow. And we were all in that house, and we made it work. We, we never felt poor. We just felt loved. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, kind of like what I carry out in the house. It's like it's a safe space. You know, we, we make it work. And it's not... It's not as stressful, I think, as people would think it is. It's more just accommodating. Hmm. And the, the, these families in, this, in the fashion that they are now, I mean, he's got kids. She has a child. Uh, when everybody is in the house, it's, it's, it's a house. I mean, it's full, of, it's full of a lot of noise and stuff. But we seem to make it work fairly well. And I'm just glad to have the space to allow them to be able to function. I mean, he was out of work for a long time, and then he got a decent job. But then he's got all that back stuff that he had to catch up in. So it's, it's the kind of thing that happens to people. She had an issue and fell behind on a couple of things, and so now this is just relief. And you can see it. I mean, it was it's just like a like they can breathe again, and I'm just glad that I can help them out. So so I kind of shared a little bit of that last night and just, you know, told people that, I mean, that's the way I grew up in the 50s, but here it is 2017, and this cycle is not going in the right direction. And I also equated it to, and I firmly believe this, I mean, I know that the basis of the United Way's giving has always been workplace giving, and the workplace that I used to work at is no longer there. The workplace that a lot of my friends used to work at. I mean, we, Jay and I worked in the same facility. It's not there anymore. That's when we started giving to the United Way. Our sister plant, uh, AC, uh, AC Next Door, same thing. And so you have know, all these union members who have grown up giving to the United Way, much like Mary Lou. I, I know exactly what she means when she says red feather. And throughout this especially in this region where we lost all this manufacturing, the United Way lost a lot of money. But anyway, so you, you have a lot of workplaces that didn't grow up with that thought of just giving through their workplace. And so it's a whole re-education tool. But wherever you have labor unions and you have those connections, that's almost a, a natural uh, ask of people, especially that make a decent wage. So if you set the example and if you show it works and if you explain it as clearly as you can and you give them something to go by, I think that the Alice stuff really works because if you, I mean, I think the stats are horrible. When They're you, certainly shocking. They, yeah, they are shocking. And, you know, I think Alice is a nice way not to say working poor anymore, but 
I mean, these people. And when I thought about the acronym, and I was I was sitting there and I said, asset limited, income constrained, and employed. I said, this is exactly what is going on. And we have way too many employers, a lot of them very generous in other ways, who are not generous with raising those wages. And that just keeps on constricting the economy. You can't expect folks like the ones living in my house to be expending their disposable income because they don't have it. They got student loans that were, in total, larger than my mortgage and my house is paid for. Even if the car is paid for, the car is not necessarily in the best working condition. It's something that we really need to take a very serious look at. I mean, a simple, you know, people may not think it this way, but a simple few dollar raise or, you know, a percentage of increase annually uh, would help relieve an awful lot of pressure. But we have people that, you know, we applaud the wealth at the top and we despise the poverty at the bottom. And Mm. we, you know, we punish people for that. And it's just not, it doesn't work. And when people get used to living at the bottom of the food chain for a very long time, they know how to survive. Mm. It may not be anything that we would find acceptable, but they know how to survive. And I quite frankly can't blame them because those are the folks that I know. And I know way too many, which is why I never mention a name, that actually, I mean, they're going to make it one way or the other. And sometimes the way they make it is not appreciated, but... They're going to figure it out. And, you know, it was, and I tell people this all the time, I'd, I learned about organized labor from home because my mother was a union member. My father was a union member. My father led a wildcat strike out of high school. Really? Yeah, he worked in a textile factory, he told me, and he said, and they weren't doing right. He said, so they had a strike, and he said, he never went back. Um, so he's, he, over the course of his life, he had a lot of jobs. And every time he could be in a job where there was a union involved, he was always in a union. So, um, did did he did they talk about it at home? You know what? It was weird because it was not necessarily talked about, but it was not dodged. I, it, the funniest thing is, I my mother was a very uh, you would say she was very straight laced and prim and proper all the time. And so she never, ever, ever, I mean, wore pants for the longest time. And so one morning I woke up, and it was like the crack of dawn. It was like 5 o'clock in the morning, same place that we live right now. And I saw her, and I'm telling you, Katie, if you had seen this site, you'd still be, I was like, wow. She had picket signs. She had on this, I had this, I used to have this really big coat that would wear really, really cold weather. She had on my coat. She had on pants. She had on these boots. I'm looking, and I was like, what is going on? She said, oh, we got a picket this morning. <laughs> she said, and I got to be on time for the picket line. Oh, my god! And it was gosh. hysterical because she was never on time for work. So I was like, <laughs> okay, this must really be important, right? So she... Um, how old were you? I was... I don't know exactly how old I was, but I had to be, I had to be a teenager or somewhere between... I had to be somewhere between 10 and whatever, because we moved in that house in the 60s, so I had to be over 12. 
But she was, this was when MTEA, not MTA, but this is when MPS brought on teachers' aides. And the fight was that the teachers were organized and the aides weren't. And my mother was part of that organizing drive for the aides, so she was one of the original teachers' aides that got organized back then. And she worked at La Follette School, and she was a library aide, and she worked on the top floor, and we all went to La Follette. And it was so hysterical because we would go and visit her on the picket line, and they had those big barrels set up. Yeah. And my mother is a great cook. So they ate well. <laughs> and the most oh and, and and there was a sight that stuck in my head to this day. And she was walking with her picket sign and there was a truck that was gonna come through and she was standing down this truck and I'm like, Oh my god. I like, okay. This You're is like that's my mother <laughs> like, out in the middle of the street. And she, and she's always so quiet and docile. But boy, when you get her flashed, I was like, Okay. So uh, but yeah, she she taught me about picket lines when I was like three or four, no, I was about five years old. We were going, we walked, we used to walk to the A&P. It was a grocery mm-hmm. store on North Avenue. And uh, we walked to the A&P and we would get our groceries. And back then you gave somebody a dollar and they drove you back home. They helped you deliver your groceries and stuff back. So we did this every Saturday. So this particular day we got there and she stopped dead like halfway up the block. And she walked up a little bit. And she said, oh, we're not shopping here today. And I said, why? She said, you see these, she said, you see these people walking with these signs? I said, yeah. She said, don't you ever, ever cross a picket line. She said, those people are fighting for their jobs. You don't cross picket lines. I said, okay. I've never crossed picket lines. And you never have. I never have crossed picket lines. Wow. No, no that's, that's not going to happen. I've walked a lot of them. Sure. I, but I've never crossed one. And she was, uh, and then she would, because I think, I think unions were just a matter of fact at our house. This is the way the world is. When you're in one, it's a good thing. I remember she used to drive downtown to pay my father's union dues. I think he was a member of SEIU at the time because he was a janitor at one point. And uh, she said, we got to go pay your daddy's union dues. I said, okay. And she'd have this little book, and she'd have her checkbook, and we'd go and pay union dues. Um, and then, um, and this is bittersweet, the Milwaukee Labor Press uh, was always on our dining room table, always. And I used to read it all the time. And so one year, it was a year that John Kennedy was running for president. She said to me, uh, she said, I want you to understand something. I said, okay. She said, now, we're going to go vote for this man because he's good. I said, all right. And so she said, I'm going to show you how to vote. So I literally voted for John Kennedy. That's the first president I ever voted for. So I flipped all the little levers and we pulled a red bar, and I voted for John Kennedy. Wow. And then she said, when we got home, she said, and here's another thing. She said, I want you to know, you are a Democrat, and don't you ever forget. <laughs> I said, okay. And she said, and if you should forget what to do, she said, you see this newspaper? I said, she said, you read this newspaper, and this newspaper will tell you who to vote for. I said, okay. And so uh, when I became the Secretary of Treasury of the Labor Press, I also became the publisher of the Milwaukee Labor Press. So it hurt my heart when we really had to put that paper down because I grew up with that paper. Because how are you going to know who to vote for? Exactly. And you know what? And it's a problem because we have an awful lot of union members who they look for that information. And unfortunately, due to some poor public policy, we no longer are able to publish the paper. But 
What kind of communication do you use to get the word out to other um, labor members? <clears throat> well, we use all of the social media now. So we've got Facebook and we've got mm-hmm. Twitter. And we do e-blasts on stuff. And we do the old-fashioned paper lit. And the one thing that we know for sure is the best way for union members to get information is member to member. So the issue then becomes uh, what members trust and don't trust. And it is extraordinarily hard to out-talk the national media. However, uh, even though, you know, a lot of people would assume as much, our union members are a microcosm of a larger society. So they vote in the same voting patterns, but they are usually more informed, uh, especially if their locals are active enough to give them information. And that can be on any different subject. Uh, but we always have something coming out, legislative alerts, uh, stuff about, you know, just like the stuff we do with the United Way campaign. There's always something going out from somewhere. And at this point, it's how the information is received, who receives it, and if you're having some kind of impact. Statistics show us we do. Statistics show us that union members are When it comes down to voting patterns, they vote in higher numbers than the general public. Uh, We can break the demographics down uh, from race and gender on what our union members, who votes the highest. Uh, I can tell you that African-American union women vote higher than any other demographic in organized labor, followed by men, followed by... Followed by African-American men. Yep. And, And it just goes down. And we all have the same demographic... Uh, issues when it comes down to who's the hardest to persuade, and that's always going to be white men. But I think that that is, um, over time, a system of people having had um, opportunities to really get what they needed and know what they needed to know and then have it drained away. And like a lot of things, I think they, sink, they seek their own level of understanding on things. And you have an awful lot of people in this country, especially now, I think, that think that they have been disadvantaged by others, when truth of the matter is uh, we live in a global economy. And the more we've globalized, the more people have not only looked upon this country as the wealth base and, you know, where consumers love to consume, but also where they get the most, um, I would say, I think maybe the most input for different things. So I'll just use the Japanese as an example. After the World War, after World War II, um, if you bought something from Japan, it was always like trash and junk. And we had a, uh, an American, Dr. Deming, who was trying to tell American manufacturers at the time that, you know, you can perfect your systems, you can do better. And uh, they didn't listen, so he took it to Japan. So the Japanese became very good at taking an American product, like our cars, and statistically looking at the flaws and how to improve it and how to improve it and how to improve it, and made it better, and became extraordinarily competitive. Um... And so then we had to do catch-up, and we did. 
uh, and I was part of that generation of folks that helped work with that. So you see people doing things better. You see production better. The production standards in the United States are as high as anybody's production standards. But we keep shrinking our workforces and not resupplying them, and we keep passing that wealth all over. So now that we've gotten it to the point that we have, we're at a tipping point where something's got to give. Um, and I think that in the future, you might see <clears throat> people who have struggled an awful lot decide it's time to organize again and know that they, in groups, can do better. The interesting thing is the countries on the opposite shores are more unionized than we are now. Hmm. And they're unionized at high numbers. Uh, we applaud certain countries about you know their wealth, their growth, and how they do things. They have determined that health care is a right, and those countries pay for health care. Our companies and we pay for health care here. That adds to the base in any kind of product that you build. Uh, they don't have to do that in Canada. They don't have to do that. It's not an additional cost no, burden not. for the it company. Is, it is, you know, it is part of, it is part of what the government does. We're getting away from public education, which is about the dumbest thing I think that we've ever done. Organized labor helped fight for public education because our children weren't being educated. The rich people could afford to get educated. Of course they could. But now we have so many schools that are pulling away from those public resources that we're, again, getting to a tipping point and people aren't paying attention. And so at some point in time, um, we're going to have literally two classes in this country, and that's not going to be a good thing. So, you know, organized labor has a way of saying, you know, we help build a middle class. Well, if you look historically, and if you look from the 30s until 60s, 70s, and what have you, that's exactly what happened. You had an awful lot of organizing going on. And as an auto worker, I know that history well. So I think that we have to really stop looking at each other so much as enemies in how we do work, but how we collectively look at the economy and say, okay, what works? Trickle-down has never worked. I know a lot of wealthy people that are very nice people. Their money makes money, and they can be as philanthropic as they want. You can have one or two that can be extraordinarily generous, but when the masses can't afford the basics and when the masses can't afford to give, the wealthy can't help that. Yeah. You're just going to have a And society. when the middle class is, 42% of us can't afford those basics but are working. Exactly. Which is, it's amazing the narrative, I think, that exists that people who don't have the basic needs aren't working or they don't want to work or they're lazy, when in fact it's literally almost half of us are working. Yeah. And still can't afford, still can't get there. Yeah. You know, I, we had a, and I said this last night too, we had a group of young people this summer. Uh, we did this old camp union at, at the Labor Council through our Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. And one day I said to them, I said, because, you know, they're little kids, you know. Well, not little, still little, but kids. 
I said, what did it cost to get you here today? And they looked at me. I said, okay, how many of you rode in someone's car? I said, because I know you can't drive. So they all raised their hands. I said, okay. I said, so somebody had to buy that car, put gas in it, maintain that car to drive you here. And they looked at me. I said, okay. I said, and where did you sleep last night? And they started looking at me. I said, I'm sure you slept in a bed. I hope you did. You got up this morning, you brushed your teeth, you had food before you went to bed, you got, maybe you ate, well, they were eating a lot there. <laughs> I said, I said, but it costs to do things. And I said, and we forget what it costs. And I remember, you know, we do this health and hygiene drive all the time. And I was at a friend's house once, and he lives on 27th Street. And I happened to be I went through the back because he was uh, uh, picking up some stuff. And I was sitting in the alley, and there was this guy who was coming down the alley. And, you know, he looks like your typical homeless guy, right? And so as he was coming down the alley, he had a bottle of water. And he had poured the bottle of water over his head. And then he had like a shirt hanging around his neck and he wiped his face off and his hair. And I realized that as he was coming down the alley, he had another bottle of water and he ran water down one arm Mm -hmm. and he wiped that arm off and he did the same with the other. And so I was asking my friend, I said, what's this guy doing? He said, oh, he said, and he pointed to this old raggedy station wagon. He said he lives in that station wagon he does odd jobs up and down the alley. And he said, and he can go to a couple of the neighbor's houses and get water, and he can wash himself off. Mm-hmm. He does little odd jobs around here, you know, and gets whatever he needs. And he said he was, you know, in prison, couldn't get a job, and so he's just been hanging around. The guy was a vet. Really? And I was like, and he lives in the alley? And he said, yep. And he said, but he's got mental health issues. And he, he said he's fairly harmless. He said, but, uh, yeah, he lives around here. And he said he won't go into the shelters until the wintertime because he doesn't like shelters. So, again, it's what we don't realize. And this man wasn't, he, it wasn't like he wasn't able-bodied. It wasn't like he wasn't skilled. He's just physically and mentally unacceptable in the workplace. And we've put enough screening. And socially, you mentioned that he was incarcerated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we've put enough screening in the way we hire people that he would never get a job. No address, no credit report, no references, no home, no way. Is that something that... You know, in your position with the Labor Council, is that something you worked on, the hiring practices? I've worked on that through varying different uh, organizations. So I'm on the Employee Milwaukee Board. We talk about it constantly at WRTP Big Step. I'm a uh, co-chair. We have, uh, I think over the course of the time that I've worked, I've actually worked on economic development stuff. And I'm always, I mean, this is an issue that is not only near and dear to my heart, this is, <laughs> I'm always teasing people. I say, I'm always trying to get a black man a job. I swear to God, it's like 
and and these are either people I don't know or people are friends of mine. It's like it's a constant like we got to keep you working, and it's one of the hardest things you'll ever. I mean, it's hard, and a lot of it has to do with race, but it also has to do with the will of employers, and unfortunately, it also has to do with the HR directors. You have an awful lot of HR managers that are very quick to not even go there. To dismiss. Totally dismiss. And unfortunately, uh, in the way the world works, if nine times out of ten, if you have a white female HR director, you're not going to have a lot of black men in your workplace. If you have um, uh, people that at least aren't being very intentional uh, about diversifying a workplace, it's not going to happen. And for whatever reason, people find black men extraordinarily threatening. And so, whether they are or not, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's a tough job. And I unfortunately know it all too well. So, I, In an ideal world, how does that, how do we fix that? In an undi- ideal world? Yeah. I'll tell you something as simple as I said on a forum in front of Tim Sheehy one day. I said the day that the employers in Milwaukee want black men to work, they will work because they will make it happen. I have seen it happen. At some point, uh, if you look at the educational curve, for instance, on black women, black women are the most educated work, part of the workforce there is. Hey, we've gone to college more than anybody's gone to college mm-hmm. because, quote, unquote, college was where you got there. I didn't go that route. Uh, I actually made it through the high school manufacturing upward route. However, having said that, that left black men down at some point and for all kinds of different reasons. I think that in particular, in particular areas, areas, if you look at a future workforce and you look at the largest group of unemployed, that largest group of unemployed folks, is going to be black men still. This is 30, 50 years down the road. And right now, I am 67 years old, and I've been hearing about these studies and these assessments for the last 25 years. I think that Mark Levine at UWM has done the black male joblessness study for so long now that any time he and I are on a panel together, which has been often in my career, we look at each other and say, here we go again. And it's like, how many times do we have to have the same discussion? So we've got people that have to believe it in every way you can believe it. They've got to believe it on paper. They've got to believe it by sight. They've got to have anecdotes. They've got to have personal stories. They've got to have testimonials. They've got to create another committee. They've got to do another study. But all the time, no one's getting a job. With the amount of money that we have spent on studying black male joblessness, we have studied mass incarceration, we have studied all of this stuff, these men could have been working. It's exasperating. And for someone like me who has sat on all these varying committees over time, and so I say to myself, in all this time, I've worked and I've had a job. 
And I wish I could count how many black men I have actually helped get through the door to get to a damn job. And sometimes it was simple as, you need to hire him. Okay. Okay. I've had closed door conversations with people and explained it as bluntly as I possibly could. What do you say? <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> well, <laughs> Open <not>. the door. <laughs> well, not a lot of stuff that can be said on a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically say that I don't understand the fear of black. I really don't. I said it, it, it astounds me that white people or whomever else have to get comfortable with my color. I've always been comfortable with theirs. It's always been there. It's a stated fact. I really don't care. I I need people to understand that that is not a barrier in itself. That is your problem, not mine. I was born this way. If you want me to be a contributing part of this society, move your privilege over and let me through the door. And it's remarkable to me that people... It's, I think that, that that in itself is something that is so astounding to folks. Now, I think of this recent conference that me and Mary Lou went to. There was a conversation about equality and equity. And I equated it, in, and I was listening to it, and I said, it's, it's, and it's exactly right. You take two people with the same identical credentials. It's like those tests they used to do in the 60s. And they could stu- you could do them right now. I know, of, I know of one right now I could do, where a black man went to a job interview, and the man that interviewed him said, and said it out loud, in this day and time, within the last month, oh, I just did it because I had to. Said to the potential no, employee? didn't say it to the, imp- the potential employee, but said it to others in that workplace. Now, I know that. And I know that for a fact. If that is happening in 2017, really seriously, and these are the people that we rely on to hire people, and said it in a way that he was boastful about it, emboldened about it. Kind of like, yep, I checked that box. I checked that box. I did it. I interviewed him. Mm So are the And I think that that goes on more often than people think. I interviewed him. I mean, I know someone who went through, the young man that lives with me, he went through an interview process that started, it took him through like a six, it was a six weeks process for a job that he was more than qualified for and took him all the way up to a tour and notified him one night via email, oh, you didn't get the job. After six weeks? The email came through at like 10.30 at night. Now, this is a man that's supposed to be now happy, not only with that organization, but thrilled about what happened? I don't think so. And when you leave that kind of taste in the mouth of black men, I'm, I'm... stymied why they don't want to go seek out any further. And people, you know, people want to know why folks get mad and upset about stuff. When you're blatantly discriminated against like that, 
And I said, let me guess, they hired a white woman, right? He said, yep. Just took me along for the ride. Now I will tell you one thing. I know that organization, they lost a, they lost a customer, seriously. And they're not a shabby group in town. But I just, it amazes me. It really does. So <clears throat> we have these things. And, of course, they're all hard to prove. I'm sure the lady that they hired was immensely qualified. I'm sure she could probably outshine whatever. But the point is, why do you put somebody through six weeks of that when you know damn well you're not going to hire them? You, I don't believe in taking those things for show. I've been on a lot of hiring committees over time. And I remember very clearly somebody said, I said, absolutely no. I said, uh-uh. I said, don't bring anyone. Don't bring anyone. I said, I don't care if all of you got is five white men. Don't bring anybody to this process that we're going to interview if they're not seriously going to be able to have a, at least a chance at this job. Just don't do it. It's, it's just, I said, I'm not going to be a part of that. Now, I just, I have to imagine that when you have those conversations or when you try to push back, it's, it's just got to be like running in circles. It is running in circles, but at some point in time, and maybe because it's the age I am and who I am, I got into, I just don't give a damn anymore. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, I'm just going to tell you. And so some of those closed-door conversations have been just that. I have chewed some folks out mm -hmm. for that. Said, this is stupid. I mean, you don't do this to people. And so I don't, I don't understand why and how, you know, and, we, and some, of the, some people are so, they're very well-meaning, they're trying not to step on toes, but they are getting absolutely nowhere. And they're just not being honest with themselves or anybody else. So that's the hard part. I think that is the part that, for me, is the most <sighs> aggravating. Yeah. You know, but it's, it's also something that I have learned over time. And I, you know, I'm pretty black and white. I mean, I don't, I don't have a gray area. And so I really do try very hard to understand what is going on on both sides of this equation. So I can listen to employers. I sat down with a group of, uh, it, it didn't matter to me, only they were employers. I, I sat down with a group of employers who were all very conservative, one extraordinarily so. And the guy that, uh, it's a small group, I forget what they call it, but anyway, they meet over at the uh, Milwaukee Athletic Club every once in a while. And so when he brought me in, he said, I just want to introduce my friend Sheila Cochran. And we served on the MATC board together. And he was going on and on. And he never mentioned who I title or anything. And so we sat there and we started to talk and we were talking about the economy, we were talking about downtown, and we were talking about the city. And so this guy that was sitting directly across from me was the most conservative guy in the room. And he said, it's amazing that we see eye to eye on this. I said, why? I said, because I'm just talking about jobs and work. I said, it's because that's all I ever talk about. I said, I talk about jobs and work all the time. I said, because that's the only thing that I know that everybody I know is concerned about is their job and their work. I said, people identify mm -hmm. their pride, their source of living. They sustain themselves and their family. I mean, their work and their job is who they are. I said, and I understand that. I said, so 
I mean, I, I don't understand why that should be a problem or you should be, you know, shocked by it. And he said, well, we seem to want the same thing for the city. I said, of course I want the same thing for the city. I said, I live here. I was born here. I said, I want to die here. I said, I, I, said, I want Milwaukee to thrive. I said, why wouldn't I? And he kept looking at me in such an odd fashion. And I said, I live in the city of Milwaukee. I said, so I have a vested interest in the city of Milwaukee. I said, and I'm not leaving it because of whatever is going on in the city of Milwaukee. And he sat back and he said, well, I had to leave the city of Milwaukee because it just wasn't working for me. I said, yeah, I assume you did. I said, but it's working for me because I'm working for it, and I'm going to keep on working for it. That's just the way I think. So, you know, you can live out in the burbs and criticize the city of Milwaukee for its ills and ilks and whatever else, but if you're not in it and if you're not of it and if you're not working for it, your opinion is not as respected with me. I have to ask, is it because of you know work because of your work with labor is it hard to get in the door to talk with those higher ups do they not want to they're like oh heck no i'm not taking the meeting with, meeting with sheila <laughs> <clears throat> katie i will not mention individuals or boardrooms but i have been places where i've come in and put my stuff down and come and sat in my chair and people have gotten up and walked away I've been in situations where I was asked to do something, and I did it, and uh, it was rejected once someone found out who I was. Uh, and I will honestly say uh, that I was, and I asked Mary Lou, I said, are you sure you want me to be a co-chair? She said, yes. Um, but also know that there are an awful lot of CEOs in this town, and I know a lot of them, and I respect them. You know, I respect them, and I respect the work that they have to do. That we see eye to eye on most things. Uh, we don't ever have to talk about politics ever. I want to see a workforce that works. And we can agree or disagree on how they get there or what it takes to get them there. But the point, in fact, is those companies in this city are important. I am never going to put any organization that I am associated with in jeopardy by my title or who the heck I used to be or was or am, uh, and I'll step aside very gratefully if somebody else, of course, I don't care. I just want it done. I'm, you know, I don't, uh, it doesn't have to be me. It can be anybody. I've right. sent emissaries all over the place. Um, and I've also sat in the company of some CEOs that I'm extraordinarily proud of who have spoken up for this community. One of them is a good friend of the United Way, Tim Sullivan, and he's talking about, you know, reinvesting in the city. He was specifically talking about, uh, uh, um, oh, God, it slipped my Century City, mm -hmm. not far from where I live, uh, and, you know, putting some investment in Century City and constantly badgering people about, what about Century City? I talk about it all the time. Because... The one thing that we've lost, which is, and I'm very proud of the Marcuses for this, we have so few of those families that made their wealth in the city and of the city of Milwaukee that have really stayed here 
and continue to invest. And that is one family that has. And it's all, I mean, you can tell it. You can mm-hmm. see. And you can see it in the way Greg uh, works with the United Way. This is, this is a genuine investment in time and energy and love of community. Uh, the family seems to be that way. And so that gives me comfort that we still have those folks around. Uh, when you look back at the old names at the plants and factories in this town, the Harnish Fakers and the Fisters and all of this stuff, you know, this is the kind of stuff that freighted that we no longer identify with as part of the fabric of this community. So I think we need to understand our own history here, understand the value of it. I mean, the, where would this town be without the breweries? and the brewery families, uh, where would we be without a lot of the families and stuff that grew up around that made this town wealthy? So their work and their legacy is something that we have to, even if you don't agree with their politics, I mean, they left a legacy. And you either keep it up or you let it, you know, self-destruct. And you shouldn't. You should. Mm -hmm. That should be cultivated. So... I don't have ever have a problem moving aside, and I, you know, I get it. You know, a lot of people look at labor as just a straight up threat, and I know why. You know, I know why it happens. But I think if you sit down and have a conversation with most folks, you find out all they want to do is work. You know, you want to you want to make something in this world. You really do. And and when you've been in manufacturing, and I have, and you have that satisfaction of actually making something, it's a different feeling. It's like you created and you help make this thing. You can see it. It's tangible. Mm-hmm. It is so much more satisfying than pushing paper. At least for me it was. I mean, I could look at the end of a day at the labor council and say, my biggest, de- <laughs> my biggest accomplishment was deleting emails. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. This is a whole lot different than making a, you know, making a computer for an actual car that's going to function. <laughs> it's like this. But, you know, it's, work is work. But, yeah, no, it, uh, it's always something. Yeah. What, um, what are some words or, or mottos or values that you really live your life by? To whom much is given, much is expected. That's the way, that's the way I was brought up. Uh, that's the way my mother is right now. I mean, it's like she's, <laughs> she's always giving, and that's the way she taught us to be. And so I don't know another way to be. It's sometimes debilitating and crippling but it just is what it is so um, I actually and this is so funny to actually say out loud I actually uh, for the first time in 40 years or so I took Labor Day off this year really you know (laughs) (laughs) I've not ever experienced a Labor Day where I wasn't engaged in something labor-related, which, quote-unquote, means we always worked on Labor Day. Right. And so this year uh, is probably one of the most selfish things I've ever done. What did you do instead? I took from... um, My birthday was September the 7th. And so my dear friend, Congresswoman Moore, always wants to take me out for something on my birthday. Mm -hmm. So she said, I want to take you out for your birthday. I said, well, I'm at taking some folks out for dinner on my birthday. But um, 
you know, I said, I'm not doing anything from, I think it was August 31st to September the 9th. I said, I'm going to take that space and time. And I took that space and time in particular because of the Labor Council. Traditionally, uh, after we've planned Labor Day and gotten everything set, it is usually from that time, I mean, if, quote, unquote, we were expecting a presidential visit, uh, it would be the worst time in the world. But from that day, August, until we close the books and everything, as much as we do close the books on Labor Day, it was always that, that time frame. And Labor Day always, like, I never planned a birthday party, never did anything like that. So this year, I spent my birthday with friends, family, and went out for a luscious dinner at the Lake Park Bistro. Um, saw my grandson, just and just was just swathered with love and family for that for that time frame, and that was the first time that has happened ever. And so, this year I didn't go to the lakefront for Labor Day, and I had a friend chastise me for not doing so. I said, but you know what? I'm sorry. It's like really exactly. You're like <laughs> after every forty that I give you, I'm taking one. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, <clears throat> yeah, no, since um, when, when, I, when I got hired at Delgree Electronics in 1979, I think uh, we had a, there was some Labor Day event we went to. It was always some Labor Day event we went to, and was always at one. And from the time I either volunteered to work down at the festival grounds or just to walk in the parade when we didn't really have it on the festival grounds, um, to something... There's only one other occasion that I wasn't there, and that was in 2013 when we canceled it. And uh, that caused quite a ruckus, but we didn't have a choice. And um, that was, and I probably wouldn't have made it through that year anyway because that was the year that my husband and my father mm-hmm. died. But this would be the only other year. That was Sheila Cochran, Milwaukee Area Labor Council AFL-CIO retiree and 2017 United Way campaign co-chair. If you're interested in learning more about the labor movement, Sheila recommends that listeners look up Walter Ruther, former president of the United Automobile Workers from 1946 until 1970. Living Local is produced by myself, Katie Kuhn, Melissa Hannon, Brian McCaig, and John Waldbauer. A special thank you to Ethan and Maeve McCaig for providing the music and voice talent for our introduction.